Martin Chuzzlewit, Chapter Forty Nine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens, Chapter Forty Nine, in which Mrs. Harris, assisted by a teapot, is the cause of a division between friends. Mrs. Gamp's apartment in Kingsgate Street, High Holborn, wore, metaphorically speaking, a robe of state. It was swept and garnished for the reception of a visitor. That visitor was Betsy Prigg, Mrs. Prigg of Bartleby's, or as some said Bartleby's, or as some said Bartleby's, for by all these endearing and familiar appellations had the hospital of St. Bartholomew become a household word among the sisterhood which Betsy Prigg adorned. Mrs. Gamp's apartment was not a spacious one, but to a contented mind a closet is a palace, and the first-floor front at Mr. Sweetlepipe's may have been, in the imagination of Mrs. Gamp, a stately pile. If it were not exactly that to restless intellects, it at least comprised as much accommodation as any person, not sanguine to insanity, could have looked for in a room of its dimensions. For only keep the bedstead always in your mind, and you were safe. That was the grand secret. Remembering the bedstead, you might even stoop to look under the little round table for anything you had dropped, without hurting yourself much against the chest of drawers, or qualifying as a patient of St. Bartholomew by falling into the fire. Visitors were much assisted in their cautious efforts to preserve an unflagging recollection of this piece of furniture by its size, which was great. It was not a turn-up bedstead, nor yet a French bedstead, nor yet a four-post bedstead, but what is poetically called a tent, the sacking whereof was low and bulgy, insomuch that Mrs. Gamp's box would not go under it, but stopped half-way, in a manner which, while it did violence to the reason, likewise endangered the legs of a stranger. The frame, too, which would have supported the canopy and hangings, if there had been any, was ornamented with divers pippins carved in timber, which, on the slightest provocation, and frequently on none at all, came tumbling down, harassing the peaceful guest with inexplicable terrors. The bed itself was decorated with a patchwork quilt of great antiquity, and at the upper end, upon the side nearest to the door hung a scanty curtain of blue check which prevented the zephyrs that were abroad in kingsgate street from visiting mrs gamp's head too roughly some rusty gowns and other articles of that lady's wardrobe depended from the post and these had so adapted themselves by long usage to her figure that more than one impatient husband coming in precipitately at about the time of twilight had been for an instant stricken dumb by the supposed discovery that mrs gamp had hanged herself one gentleman coming on the usual hasty errand had said indeed that they looked like guardian angels watching of her in her sleep but that, as Mrs. Gamp said, was his first, and he never repeated the sentiment, though he often repeated his visit. The chairs in Mrs. Gamp's apartment were extremely large and broad-backed, which was more than a sufficient reason for there being but two in number. They were both elbow-chairs of ancient mahogany, 
and were chiefly valuable for the slippery nature of their seats, which had been originally horsehair, but were now covered with a shiny substance of a bluish tint, from which the visitor began to slide away with a dismayed countenance immediately after sitting down. What Mrs. Gamp wanted in chairs she made up in bandboxes, of which she had a great collection, devoted to the reception of various miscellaneous valuables, which were not, however, as well protected as the good woman, by a pleasant fiction, seemed to think, for, though every bandbox had a carefully closed lid, not one among them had a bottom, owing to which cause the property within was merely, as it were, extinguished. The chest of drawers, having been originally made to stand upon the top of another chest, had a dwarfish elfin look alone, but in regard of its security it had a great advantage over the bandboxes, for as all the handles had been long ago pulled off, it was very difficult to get at its contents. This, indeed, was only to be done by one or two devices, either by tilting the whole structure forward until all the drawers fell out together, or by opening them singly with knives like oysters. Mrs. Gamp stored all her household matters in a little cupboard by the fireplace, beginning below the surface, as in nature, with the coals, and mounting gradually upwards to the spirits, which, from motives of delicacy, she kept in a teapot. The chimney-piece was ornamented with a small almanac, marked here and there in Mrs. Gamp's own hand, with a memorandum of the date at which some lady was expected to fall due it was also embellished with three profiles one in colours of mrs gamp herself in early life one in bronze of a lady in feathers supposed to be mrs harris as she appeared when dressed for a ball and one in black of mr gamp deceased the last was a full length in order that the likeness might be rendered more obvious and forcible by the introduction of the wooden leg a pair of bellows a pair of pattens a toasting-fork, a kettle, a pap-boat, a spoon for the administration of medicine to the refractory, and lastly Mrs. Gamp's umbrella, which, as something of great price and rarity, was displayed with particular ostentation, completed the decorations of the chimney-piece and adjacent wall. Towards these objects Mrs. Gamp raised her eyes in satisfaction when she had arranged the tea-board, and had concluded her arrangements for the reception of Betsy Prigg, even unto the setting forth of two pounds of Newcastle salmon intensely pickled. "'There, now drat you, Betsy, don't be long,' said Mrs. Gamp, apostrophizing her absent friend for i can't abear to wait i do assure you to whatever place i goes i sticks to this one mortar i'm easy pleased it is but little as i wants but i must have that little of the best and to the minute when the clock strikes else we do not part as i could wish but barren malice in our arts her own preparations were of the best for they comprehended a delicate new loaf a plate of fresh butter a basin of fine white sugar, and other arrangements on the same scale. Even the snuff with which she now refreshed herself was so choice in quality that she took a second pinch. "'There's the little bell a-ringing now,' said Mrs. Gamp, hurrying to the stairhead and looking over. "'Betsy Prig, my—why, it's that there disappointing sweetle-pipes, I do believe.' "'Yes, it's me,' said the barber, in a faint voice. "'I've just come in. 
"'You're always a-coming in, I think,' muttered Mrs. Gamp to herself, "'except when you're a-goin' out. I hate no patience with that man.' "'Mrs. Gamp,' said the barber, "'I say, Mrs. Gamp.' "'Well,' cried Mrs. Gamp impatiently as she descended the stairs, "'what is it? Is the Thames a fire and cookin' its own fish, Mr. Sweetlepipes? Why, what's the man gone and been doin' of to himself? He's as white as chalk.' She added the latter clause of inquiry when she got downstairs, and found him seated in the shaving-chair, pale and disconsolate. "'You recollect, you recollect young—not uh, young Wilkins,' cried Mrs. Gamp. "'Don't say young Wilkins, whatever you do. If young Wilkins' wife is took, it isn't anybody's wife,' exclaimed the little barber. "'Bailey, young Bailey!' "'Why, what do you mean to say that chit's been a-doin' of?' retorted Mrs. Gamp sharply. "'Stuff and nonsense, Mrs. Sweetlepipes!' "'He hasn't been a-doin' anything!' exclaimed poor Paul, quite desperate. "'What do you catch me up so short for, when you see me put out to that extent that I can hardly speak? He'll never do anything again. He's done for. He's killed. The first time I ever see that boy,' said Paul, "'I charged him too much for a red-pole.' I asked him three halfpenny for a penny one, because I was afraid he'd beat me down, but he didn't, and now he's dead. If he was to crowd all the steam-engines and electric fluids that ever was into this shop and set em every one to work their hardest, they couldn't square the account, though it's only a halfpenny. Mr. Sweetlepipe turned aside to the towel and wiped his eyes with it. "'And what a clever boy he was,' he said. What a surprising young chap he was, how he talked, and what a deal he knowed. Shaved in this very chair he was, only for fun. It was all his fun, he was full of it. Ah, to think that he'll never be shaved in earnest. The birds might every one have died and welcome, cried the little barber, looking round him at the cages and again applying to the towel, sooner than I'd have heard this news. "'How did you ever come to hear it?' said Mrs. Gamp. "'Who told you?' "'I went out,' returned the little barber, "'into the city to meet a sporting gent upon the stock exchange "'that wanted a few slow pigeons to practice at, "'and when I'd done with them I went to get a little drop of beer, "'and there I heard everybody a-talkin' about it. "'It's in the papers.' "'You are in a nice state of confusion, Mr. Sweetlepipes, you are,' said Mrs. Gamp, shaking her head. "'And my opinion is, as half a dozen fresh young lively leeches on your temples wouldn't be too much to clear your mind, which so I tell you. What they were a-talkin' on, and what was in the papers?' "'All about it!' cried the barber. "'What else do you suppose?' him and his master were upset on a journey and he was carried to salisbury and was breathing his last when the account came away he never spoke afterwards not a single word that's the worst of it to me but that ain't all his master can't be found the other manager of that office of the city crimple david crimple has gone off with the money and is advertised for with a reward upon the walls Mr. Montague, poor young Bailey's master, what a boy he was, is advertised for, too. Some say he slipped off to join his friend abroad, and some say he mayn't have got away yet, and they're looking for him high and low. Their office is a smash, a swindle altogether, but what's a life assurance office through a life, and what a life young Bailey's was!' 
"'He was born into a whale,' said Mrs. Gamp, with philosophical coolness. "'And he lived in a whale, and he must take the consequence of such a situation. "'But don't you hear nothing of Mr. Chiselwit in all this?' "'No,' said Paul. "'Nothing to speak of. His name wasn't printed as one of the board, though some people say it was just going to be. Some believe he was took in, and some believe he was one of the takers in. But however they may be, they can't prove nothing against him. This morning he went up of his own accord afore the Lord Mayor and some of our city bigwigs, and complained that he'd been swindled, and that those two persons had gone off and cheated him, and that he'd just found out that Montague's name wasn't even Montague, but something else.' and they do say that he looked like death owing to his losses but lord forgive me cried the barber coming back again to the subject of his individual grief what's his looks to me he might have died and welcome fifty times and not been such a loss as bailey at this juncture the little bell rang and the deep voice of mrs prig struck into the conversation oh you're a-talkin about it are you observed that lady well i hope you've got it over for i ain't interested in it myself my precious betsy said mrs gamp how late you are the worthy mrs prig replied with some asperity that if perwerse people went off dead when they was least expected it warn't no fault of hern and further that it was quite aggravation enough to be made late when one was droppin' for one's tea without hearin' on it again. Mrs. Gamp, deriving from this exhibition of repartee some clue to the state of Mrs. Prigg's feelings, instantly conducted her upstairs, deeming that the sight of pickled salmon might work a softening change. But Betsy Prigg expected pickled salmon. It was obvious that she did, for her first words, after glancing at the table, were, "'I knowed she wouldn't have a cowcumber.' Mrs. Gamp changed colour and sat down upon the bedstead. "'Lord bless you, Betsy Prigg, your words is true. I quite forgot it.' Mrs. Prigg, looking steadfastly at her friend, put her hand in her pocket, and with an air of surly triumph drew forth either the oldest of lettuces or youngest of cabbages, but at any rate a green vegetable of an expansive nature, and of such magnificent proportions that she was obliged to shut it up like an umbrella before she could pull it out. She also produced a handful of mustard and cress, a trifle of the herb called dandelion, three bunches of radishes, an onion rather larger than an average turnip, three substantial slices of beetroot, and a short prong or antler of celery, the whole of this garden-stuff having been publicly exhibited but a short time before as a tuppenny salad, and purchased by Mrs. Prigg on condition that the vendor could get it all into her pocket, which had been happily accomplished in High Holborn to the breathless interest of a hackney coach-stand. And she laid so little stress upon this surprising forethought that she did not even smile, but returning her pocket into its accustomed sphere, merely recommended that these productions of nature should be sliced up for the immediate consumption in plenty of vinegar. "'And don't go a-droppin' none of your snuff in it,' asked Mrs. Prigg. "'In gruel, barley-water, apple-tea, mutton-broth, and that, it don't signify. It stimulates a patient.' but i don't relish it myself 
"'Why, Betsy Prig!' cried Mrs. Gamp. "'How can you talk so?' "'Why, ain't your patience, whatever their diseases is, "'always a-sneezing their weary heads off along o' your snuff?' said Mrs. Prig. "'And what if they are?' said Mrs. Gamp. "'Nothing if they are,' said Mrs. Prig. "'But don't deny it, Sarah. "'Who denies of it?' Mrs. Gamp inquired. Mrs. Prig returned no answer. "'Who denies of it, Betsy?' Mrs. Gamp inquired again. Then Mrs. Gamp, by reversing the question, imparted a deeper and more awful character of solemnity to the same. "'Betsy, who denies of it?' It was the nearest possible approach to a very decided difference of opinion between these ladies, but Mrs. Prig's impatience for the meal being greater at the moment than her impatience of contradiction, she replied for the present, "'Nobody, if you don't, Sarah,' and prepared herself for tea for a quarrel can be taken up at any time, but a limited quantity of salmon cannot. Her toilet was simple. She had merely to chuck her bonnet and shawl upon the bed, give her hair two poles, one upon the right side and one upon the left, as if she were ringing a couple of bells, and all was done. The tea was already made. Mrs. Gamp was not long over the salad, and they were soon at the height of their repast. The temper of both parties was improved for the time being by the enjoyments of the table. When the meal came to a termination, which it was pretty long in doing, and Mrs. Gamp, having cleared away, produced the teapot from the top shelf simultaneously with a couple of wine-glasses, they were quite amiable. "'Betsy,' said Mrs. Gamp, filling her own glass and passing the teapot, "'I will now propose a toast. My frequent partner, Betsy Prigg.' "'Which, altering the name to Sarry Gamp, I drink,' said Mrs. Prigg, "'with love and tenderness.' From this moment symptoms of inflammation began to lurk in the nose of each lady, and perhaps notwithstanding all appearances to the contrary, in the temper also. "'Now, Sarry,' said Mrs. Prigg, "'joining business with pleasure, what is this case in which you want me?' Mrs. Gamp, betraying in her face some intention of returning an evasive answer, Betsy added, "'Is it, Mrs. Harris?' "'No, Betsy Prigg, it ain't,' was Mrs. Gamp's reply. "'Well,' said Mrs. Prigg, with a short laugh, "'I'm glad of that, at any rate.' "'Why should you be glad of that, Betsy?' Mrs. Gamp retorted warmly. "'She is unbeknown to you except by hearsay. Why should you be glad?' "'If you have anything to say contrary to the character of Mrs. Harris, "'which I well knows behind her back, afore her face already wears, "'is not to be impeached, out with it, Betsy. "'I have known that sweetest and best of women,' said Mrs. Gamp, "'shaking her head and shedding tears, "'ever since afore her first, which Mr. Harris, who was dreadful timid, "'went and stopped his ears in an empty dog-kennel, "'and never took his hands away or come out once till he was showed the baby, "'when being took with fits the doctor collared him "'and laid him on his back upon the airy stones, "'and she was told to ease her mind, her owls was organs.' "'And I have known her, Betsy Prigg, when he has hurt her feelin' out by sayin' of his ninth that it was one too many, if not two, while the dear innocent was cooin' in his face, which thrive it did, though bandy. 
but i have never known as you had occasion to be glad betsy on accounts of mrs harris not requiring you require she never will depend upon it for her constant words in sicknesses and will be send for sarry during this touching address mrs prig adroitly feigning to be the victim of that absence of mind which has its origin in excessive attention to one topic helped herself from the teapot without appearing to observe it mrs gamp observed it however and came to a premature close in consequence well it ain't her it seems said mrs prig coldly who is it then you have heard me mention betsy mrs gamp replied after glancing in an expressive and marked manner at the teapot a person as i took care on at the time as you and me was partners off and on in that there fever at the bull old snuffy mrs prig observed sarah gamp looked at her with an eye of fire for she saw in this mistake of mrs prig another wilful and malignant stab at that same weakness or custom of hers an ungenerous allusion to which on the part of betsy had first disturbed their harmony that evening and she saw it still more clearly when politely but firmly correcting that lady by the distinct enunciation of the word chuffy mrs prig received the correction with a diabolical laugh the best among us have their failings and it must be conceded of mrs prig that if there were a blemish in the goodness of her disposition it was a habit she had of not bestowing all its sharp and acid properties upon her patients as a thorough amiable woman would have done but of keeping a considerable remainder for the service of her friends highly pickled salmon and lettuces chopped up in vinegar may as viands possessing some acidity of their own have encouraged and increased this failing in mrs prig and every application to the teapot certainly did for it was often remarked of her by her friends that she was the most contradictory when most elevated it is certain that her countenance became about this time derisive and defiant and that she sat with her arms folded and one eye shut up in a somewhat offensive besides obtrusively intelligent manner Mrs. Gamp, observing this, felt it the more necessary that Mrs. Prig should know her place, and be made sensible of her exact station in society, as well as her obligations to herself. She therefore assumed an air of greater patronage and importance, as she went on to answer Mrs. Prig a little more in detail. "'Mr. Chuffey, Betsy,' said Mrs. Gamp, "'is weak in his mind. Excuse me if I makes remark.' that he may neither be so weak as people thinks nor people may not think he is so weak as they pretends and what i knows i knows and what you don't you don't so do not ask me betsy but mr chuffey's friends has made proposals for his being took care on and has said to me mrs gamp will you undertake it we couldn't think they says of trusting him to nobody but you for sarry you are gold as has passed the furnage will you undertake it at your own price day and night and by your own self no i says i will not do not reckon on it there is i says but one creature in the world as i would undertake on such terms and her name is harris but i says i am acquainted with a friend whose name is betsy prig that i can recommend and will assist me betsy i says is always to be trusted under me and will be guided as i could desire 
Here Mrs. Prigg, without any abatement of her offensive manner, again counterfeited abstraction of mind, and stretched out her hand to the teapot. It was more than Mrs. Gamp could bear. She stopped the hand of Mrs. Prigg with her own, and said with great feeling, "'No, Betsy, drink fair, whatever you do.' Mrs. Prigg, thus baffled, threw herself back in her chair, and closing the same eye more emphatically and folding her arms tighter, suffered her head to roll slowly from side to side while she surveyed her friend with a contemptuous smile. Mrs. Gamp resumed. "'Mrs. Harris, Betsy, bother Mrs. Harris,' said Betsy Prigg. Mrs. Gamp looked at her with amazement, incredulity, and indignation, when Mrs. Prigg, shutting her eye still closer and folding her arms still tighter, uttered these memorable and tremendous words. "'I don't believe there's no such a person!' After the utterance of which expression she leaned forward, and snapped her fingers once, twice, thrice, each time nearer to the face of Mrs. Gamp, and then rose to put on her bonnet as one who felt that there was now a gulf between them which nothing could ever bridge across. The shock of this blow was so violent and sudden that Mrs. Gamp sat staring at nothing with uplifted eyes, and her mouth open as if she were gasping for breath, until Betsy Prigg had put on her bonnet and her shawl, and was gathering the latter about her throat. Then Mrs. Gamp rose, morally and physically rose, and denounced her. "'What?' said Mrs. Gamp. "'You bad creature!' Have I known Mrs. Harris five-and-thirty year to be told at last that there ain't no such a person livin'? Have I stood her friend in all her troubles, great and small, for it to come at last to such a end as this, which her own sweet picture hangin' up afore you all the time to shame your brazen words? But will you make believe there's no such a creature, for she wouldn't demean herself to look at you, and often has she said, when I have made mention of your name, which to my sinful sorrow I have done, what, Sary Gamp, to page yourself to her, go along with you. I'm a-goin', ma'am, ain't I? said Mrs. Prigg, stopping as she said it. You had better, ma'am, said Mrs. Gamp. Do you know who you're talking to, ma'am? inquired her visitor. Apparently, said Mrs. Gamp, surveying her with scorn from head to foot, to Betsy Prigg, apparently so, I know her, no one better, go along with you. And you was a-going to take me under you, cried Mrs. Prigg, surveying Mrs. Gamp from head to foot in her turn. You was, was you? Oh, how kind! Why, deuce take your imprints, said Mrs. Prigg, with a rapid change from banter to ferocity. What do you mean?' "'Go along with you,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'I blush for you.' "'You had better blush a little for yourself while you are about it,' said Mrs. Prigg. "'You and your chuffies. What the poor old creature isn't mad enough, isn't he? Ha, ha!' "'He'd very soon be mad enough if you had anything to do with him,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'And that's what I was wanted for, is it?' cried Mrs. Prigg triumphantly. "'Yes, but you'll find yourself deceived. I won't go near him. We shall see how you get on without me. I won't have nothing to do with him.' "'You never spoke a truer word than that,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'Go along with you.' 
she was prevented from witnessing the actual retirement of Mrs. Prigg from the room, notwithstanding the great desire she had expressed to behold it by that lady, in her angry withdrawal, coming into contact with the bedstead, and bringing down the previously mentioned pippins, three or four of which came rattling on the head of Mrs. Camp so smartly, that when she recovered from this wooden shower-bath, Mrs. Prigg was gone. She had the satisfaction, however, of hearing the deep voice of Betsy, proclaiming her injuries and her determination to have nothing to do with Mr. Chuffey, down the stairs and along the passage, and even out in Kingsgate Street. Likewise of seeing in her own apartment, in the place of Mrs. Prigg, Mr. Sweedlepipe and two gentlemen. "'Why, bless my life!' exclaimed the little barber. "'What's amiss? The noise you ladies have been making, Mrs. Gamp!' Why, these two gentlemen have been standing on the stairs, outside the door, nearly all the time, trying to make you hear, while you were pelting away hammer and tongs. It'll be the death of the little bullfinch in the shop that draws his own water. In his fright, he's been astrain in himself all to bits, drawing more water than he could drink in a twelve-month. He must have thought it was fire. Mrs. Gamp had in the meanwhile sunk into her chair, from whence, turning up her overflowing eyes and clasping her hands, she delivered the following lamentation. "'Oh, Mr. Sweedlepipes, which Mr. Westlock also, if my eyes do not deceive, and a friend not have the pleasure of being benown, what I've took from Betsy Prigg this blessed night no mortal creature knows. If she had abused me, being in liquor, which I thought I smelt her when she come, but could not so believe not being used myself. Mrs. Gamp, by the way, was pretty far gone, and the fragrance of the teapot was strong in the room. I could have bore it with a thankful art. But the words she spoke of Mrs. Harris Lambs could not forgive. No, Betsy, said Mrs. Gamp, in a violent burst of feeling, nor worms forget. The little barber scratched his head and shook it, and looked at the teapot, and gradually got out of the room. John Westlock, taking a chair, sat down on one side of Mrs. Gamp. Martin, taking the foot of the bed, supported her on the other. "'You wonder what we want, I dare say,' observed John. "'I'll tell you presently, when you have recovered. It's not pressing for a few minutes or so. How do you find yourself better?' Mrs. Gamp shed more tears, shook her head, and feebly pronounced Mrs. Harris's name. "'Have a little—' John was at a loss what to call it. "'Tea,' suggested Martin. "'It ain't tea,' said Mrs. Gamp. A "'Physic of some sort, I suppose,' cried John. "'Have a little.' Mrs. Gamp was prevailed upon to take a glassful. "'On condition,' she passionately observed, "'as Betsy never has another stroke of work from me.' "'Certainly not,' said John. "'She shall never help to nurse me.' "'To think,' said Mrs. Gamp, "'as she should ever have helped to nurse that friend of yours, "'and been so near of hearing things that—ah!' John looked at Martin. "'Yes,' he said, "'that was a narrow escape, Mrs. Gamp.' "'Narrow indeed,' she returned. It was only my having the night in hearing of him in his wanderings, and her the day that saved it. What would she have said and done if she had known what I know, that perfidious wretch? Yet, oh, good gracious me, cried Mrs. Gamp, trampling on the floor in the absence of Mrs. Prigg, that I should hear from that same woman's lips what I have heard her speak of Mrs. Harris. Never mind, said John. "'You know it is not true.' 
isn't true cried mrs gamp true don't i know as that dear woman is expected of me at this minute mr westlock and is a-lookin out of window down the street with little tommy harris in her arms as calls me his own gammy and truly calls for bless the mottled little legs of that there precious child like canterbury broad his own dear father says which so they are his own i have been ever since i found him mr westlock with his small red worsted shoe a-gurgling in his throat where he had put it in his play a chick while they was leavin of him on the floor a lookin for it through the ouse and him a chokin sweetly in the parlour oh betsy prig what wickedness you showed this night but never shall you darken sarry's doors again you twining serpent you are always so kind to her too said john consolingly that's the cutting part that's when it hurts me mr westlock mrs gamp replied holding out her glass unconsciously while martin filled it chosen to help you with mr loosom said john chosen to help you with mr chuffey chose one but chose no more cried mrs gamp no partnership with betsy prig again sir no no said john that would never do i don't know as it ever would have done sir mrs gamp replied with a solemnity peculiar to a certain stage of intoxication now that's the marks by which mrs gamp is supposed to have meant mask is off that creature's face i do not think it ever would have done there are regions in families for keeping things a secret mr westlock and having only them about you as you knows you can repoge in who could repoge in betsy prig after her words of mrs harris sitting in that chair afore my eyes quite true said john quite i hope you have time to find another assistant mrs gamp between her indignation and the teapot her powers of comprehending what was said to her began to fail she looked at john with tearful eyes and murmuring the well-remembered name which mrs prig had challenged as if it were a talisman against all earthly sorrows seemed to wander in her mind i hope repeated john that you have time to find another assistant which short it is indeed cried mrs gamp turning up her languid eyes and clasping mr westlock's wrist with matronly affection to-morrow evening sir i waits upon his friends mr chuzzlewit appointed it from nine to ten from nine to ten said john with a significant glance at martin and then mr chuffey retires into safe keeping does he he needs to be kept safe i do assure you mrs gamp replied with a mysterious air other people besides me has had a happy deliverance from betsy prig i little know that woman she'd have let it out let him out you mean said john do i retorted mrs gamp oh the severely ironical character of this reply was strengthened by a very slow nod and a still slower drawing down of the corners of mrs gamp's mouth she added with extreme stateliness of manner after indulging in a short doze but i'm a keepin of you gentlemen and time is precious 
mingling with that delusion of the teapot which inspired her with the belief that they wanted her to go somewhere immediately a shrewd avoidance of any further reference to the topics into which she had lately strayed mrs gamp rose and putting away the teapot in its accustomed place and locking the cupboard with much gravity proceeded to attire herself for a professional visit this preparation was easily made, as it required nothing more than the stuffy black bonnet, the stuffy black shawl, the pattens, and the indispensable umbrella, without which neither a lion in nor a laying out could by any possibility be attempted. When Mrs. Gamp had invested herself with these appendages, she returned to her chair, and sitting down again, declared herself quite ready. "'It's a happiness to know as one can benefit the poor sweet creature,' she observed. "'I'm sure it isn't all as can. The tortoise Betsy Prig inflicts is frightful.' Closing her eyes as she made this remark, in the acuteness of her commiseration for Betsy's patience, she forgot to open them again until she dropped a patent. Her nap was also broken at intervals, like the fabled slumbers of Friar Bacon, by the dropping of the other pattern and of the umbrella, but when she had got rid of these encumbrances her sleep was peaceful. The two young men looked at each other ludicrously enough, and Martin, stifling his disposition to laugh, whispered in John Westlock's ear, "'What shall we do now?' "'Stay here,' he replied. Mrs. Gamp was heard to murmur, mrs harris in her sleep rely upon it whispered john looking cautiously towards her that you shall question this old clerk though you go as mrs harris herself we know quite enough to carry her our own way now at all events thanks to this quarrel which confirms the old saying that when rogues fall out honest people get what they want let jonas chuzzlewit look to himself and let her sleep as long as she likes. We shall gain our end in good time. End of chapter 49